Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, August 8th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes longtime acclaimed journalist and broadcaster Steve Kraft. The Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what Ben Jarofsky's up to, and a whole lot more. Just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky if you want more from Ben. I'll spell that out for you. That's J-O-R-A-B as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this <laughs> Ramen Barbie. Ramen Barbie Tuesday, and here's why. First of all, hope you all had a really great weekend. And uh, while I was flaked out on the couch on Sunday, I got my beloved bright one, Chicago Sun-Times. I'm going to show my distinguished guest that it is an actual newspaper, distinguished guest who is in Arizona, ladies and gentlemen, of the state, not the song by Mark Lindsay. He can't believe that I'm actually reading a newspaper because he is a modern man and he doesn't read newspapers anymore. He gets all his news on the phone. But I actually read the newspaper sometimes. And uh, every Sunday, they bring back uh, Michael Sneed, the gossip columnist who reigned supreme in the city of Chicago in the 90s and the O's. So once a week, she writes a column for a bright one. This week's column was dedicated to uh, giving Dan Webb, attorney Dan Webb, a whole full page to defend his client, Pat Fitzgerald. We're not going to talk about Northwestern hazing. And then there was a, a sidebar about Rahm Emanuel. And folks, I've been following this from afar. Rahm Emanuel is now, as you all know, the ambassador to Japan, uh, and he uh, got out of the country while the getting was good. Uh, about a year ago, I want to say, it is obvious to me and other Rahm followers in the city of Chicago who I talked to that he is itching to get back in the game because all of a sudden his name is getting dropped in newspaper columns. Like, man, is in Tokyo. I figure he's got a lot to do. He's a very busy guy, all right, doing whatever ambassadors do, you know, hosting other diplomats and functionaries and feeding people and that kind of thing. Uh, but he just wanted the world to know that he saw the movie Barbie. And uh, so uh, Greta Gerwig happened to be in town in uh, Tokyo for the uh, Japanese debut of Barbie. And she is the director of Barbie and Ron was there. And somehow or other that little meeting complete with a photograph of Greta Gerwig meeting Rom got to the Chicago Sun-Times. Now, I just want to point out, every time this happens, about three months ago, the Chicago Sun-Times, the WBEZ teamed up to do an excellent, in my humble opinion, investigation, serious journalism about closing the schools. Rom closed 50 schools 10 years ago. It's the 10-year anniversary. 
And when they reached out, when those reporters, when those dutiful reporters, Nader Issa, Alden Lowry, Lauren Fitzpatrick, Sarah Karp, when they reached out to Rom for comment about closing the 50 schools, they couldn't find him. All of a sudden, his phone didn't work. Isn't that funny? How did, I can't hear a thing. Bad reception. Sorry. But when Rom wants the Sun-Times to know that he saw Barbie, it's amazing how that phone suddenly works again. The satellite clears up. Maybe Elon Musk sent up a special satellite for Rom, a Romalite uh, up there in the uh, heavens where Rom can reach out to the Sun-Times whenever he needs to, to let them know that he still exists. Don't forget me. He's like the guy in the fly. I am here. I am here. <laughs> my distinguished guest is going, man, where are you going with the fly? I saw that movie way back when. Uh, and here's my this is part of my favorite parts of this little clip. He also wanted people to know that uh, he's well aware of Oppenheimer, the, the big movie of the summer, along with Barbie. I don't know if Rom saw it, but he made a point of saying, quote, I read the Pulitzer Prize winning Oppenheimer book when it first came out. <laughs> Put in the Pulitzer. Who speaks that way, by the way? The Pulitzer Prize winning book. Most people say, yeah, I read the book. Uh, it was a fabulous biography. But personal knowledge here of the dangers of nuclear war are very real. Uh, and then he let us all know that he had seen the bear, which, by the way, I'm very homesick. I've seen the bear. So, you know, I can analyze Rom. First of all, I do not believe that he actually read Oppenheimer. This is a, a long running discourse with me analyzing Rom's reading list. When he was the mayor of the city of Chicago, he had the Rom reading list, reading list, and it was these voluminous tomes on his list. Now, this is a guy who wakes up in the morning and picks up the phone and starts wheeling and dealing and takes breaks only to do like exercise, like swimming. And then it's back on the phones, wheeling. The, this is the man's persona. How in the world does he have any time to read a massive tome like Oppenheimer, which is an enormous book? It's like 500 pages. I could tell you this as a lifelong reader. I'm up to like three in the morning reading books. I can barely get through a book a week. But he's super rom. He read it. I swear to God, I read it. He's sticking. That's his story. And he's sticking to it. I don't believe he read it. And then this thing about Rom and the Hulu series, The Bear. Man, that is sad. As you all know, one of the first things Mayor Rom did when his first budget was uh, close the mental health clinics. If you've seen the movie The Bear, you know it deals a lot with the trauma uh, that people have for existing in dysfunctional families uh, and the pain, that lifelong pain, alcoholism and abuse, et cetera, and so forth, in which people are basically saying we need mental health treatment. It's kind of a part, part of a larger theme I've noticed in culture. These days, a lot of TV shows are dealing with past traumas. Uh, and uh, so, man, Mayor Rahm, I don't know. I wouldn't boast about seeing the bear. You're the mayor who closed those mental health clinics in those neighborhoods where there was uh, those high crime neighborhoods where people desperately needed mental health. But anyway, my guess is he's getting ready to come back. Probably going to run for office, maybe Senate. Maybe he has the inside scoop that Richard Durbin is not running uh, in uh, 2016. So he's just keeping that name out there. Mayor Rahm and Barb. What a true. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest, the legendary Steve Kraft uh, and uh, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, Steve, first of all, uh, and uh, a retired news reporter in uh, from the great state of Arizona. He's now taking the job as the Ben Jarofsky show, Arizona political correspondent. Uh, we're paying an enormous sum. So th thank you for taking that job, Steve. And thank you for coming on my humble little podcast. 
Many thanks. I'm uh, I'm honored to be manning the Southwestern Bureau for the Jarowski's program, the the worldwide network. And uh, I'll, I'll do my best to not let you down, Ben. But I just want the folks to know that, yeah, I've been out here a long time, but I'm still at heart a Chicagoan. We went, let's full disclosure, we went to Evanston Township High School together, Wild Kids, and uh, Nichols Junior High School before that. Yes. Lions, remember? They were the Lions. I did not remember that at all. Uh, I, I do remember that young Steve Kraft uh, and I were the same age. Uh, he looks a lot younger than I do, though. He's done well. Um, and uh, it's probably got a picture of Dorian Gray thing going in the attic. Uh, but uh, uh, so we were uh, uh, in seventh grade together, ladies and gentlemen. He showed up. I, I, I moved to my family moved to Evanston. Uh, I've said many times when I was in sixth grade from Rhode Island. Uh, and uh, one year in young Steve Kraft. Uh, joined my seventh grade class. I've known this kid since seventh grade, ladies and gentlemen. I can't believe it. Uh, and I followed your career. Outstanding news reporter. You, you retired. What was it? I've lost track of time, Steve. I think it was four years ago after 34 four years, years in the game. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, 34 years in the game. Tell folks a little bit about your career in Arizona. Go ahead. All right. Well, I, I didn't. And I think this is good for all you folks out there who want to get into journalism. Don't study it. That's my advice. I did not study it. Ben clearly has not studied journalism. And, and I think that's great. And um, study anything else. Just get life experience, travel, whatever. So, uh, you know, I went to college and then I um, traveled around Europe, worked in a factory for a while to make money and then uh, in, on the west side of Chicago in the Lawndale area. Uh, and then went to uh, Europe and just kind of hung out for three months or whatever it was and came back and I worked in advertising at Leo Burnett in Chicago for a cup of coffee. And then uh, I wound up going to law school and I became an attorney and I worked in a loop law firm in the, what was the Sears tower, still the Sears tower. Come on. And I did that for a year and a half. And I realized that the, the corporate litigation game was not my thing. Uh, I know a lot of people love it. I just didn't. So um, I'd done radio in college and I worked at a tremendous radio station that was kind of my journalism school. I was around super smart, talented people, creative types. And um, I just one day uh, went into my office and I started calling in my law firm and I started calling all the TV stations around town, just trying to catch on somehow. And lo and behold, uh, Channel 5, WMAQ, had, had a job opening for a researcher. Uh, it was at one third of the salary I was making as a lawyer, one third. But I, I did it and I became a researcher there for about a year and a half. And I worked for a reporter named Aaron Moriarty, who was a great consumer investigative reporter then. Now was on CBS. Um, and then eventually made a tape, did uh, just like you, Ben, um, community access cable television productions with a with a kind of a makeshift crew of friends and I send it around the country and I didn't get jobs in Mobile, Alabama, Baltimore, Madison, Wisconsin, Rockford, which was where I really wanted to go because it was close to home. But uh, Phoenix, believe it or not, had an opening for a producer. And so I came down to Phoenix and I thought, Oof, what a cow town. I, this place is a brutal. Ugh. Went back to Chicago, thought nothing of it. And a couple months later, they called me and they said, well, yeah, so can you come down here like in a week or two? 
they offered me a job. So I came down to Phoenix to be a producer. Um, I really had no training being on the air. And this was at the time the 27th market, Phoenix. Now it's the 11th market. And I've been here literally a week when the reporter for whom I was doing some sort of production stuff uh, suddenly quit to become an anchor uh, in Pittsburgh or somewhere like that. And I was on the air. I was on the air. And didn't know which camera to look at. <laughs> Super green. I've been on live television. Um, but um, I just kind of, you know, if you do it long enough, you pick it up. There were a couple of times that I was, you know, pretty rough around the edges. But within about maybe a year or two, I kind of got the hang of it. And what I didn't have in, say, training on camera, I did have in sort of the intellectual background for being a journalist, the knowledge base, the curiosity, the writing ability, the interviewing ability. Um, and in television, if I can offer a little critique, so many people go to journalism school or television finishing school, really, and they spend so much time on the cosmetic aspects of it. They all want to be anchors because that's where the money is and the power, typically. Um, and the part they leave out is the life experience part knowledge based part if you don't have the raw material in your mind to come up with questions it doesn't matter how good you look or how polished you are you're you're empty there's nothing mm. for you to contribute so you want that blend and you can learn the presentation techniques but the part you can't really learn is what you've absorbed over the years so traveling having a variety of careers which i'd had at that point and being curious about people and not being shy really about people when you interview them and when you talk to them. And also growing up in Evanston, a great benefit was there's many different types of communities in Evanston. It's a microcosm of Chicago, rich to poor and in between, different ethnicities. And being at ease talking to anybody was a major advantage for me. And, and being in Chicago, having worked on the West Side for five summers, uh, nights, overnights, um, was really a great experience for me. And so when I went into any community in Phoenix, from the, you know, the wealthiest places, these enclaves in Scottsdale or Paradise Valley to, you know, um, barrios, working class neighborhoods, every type of ethnicity that you can meet, um, I, I kind of was ready for it. Mm -hmm. And so... That's what I've been doing here. I was a reporter here for 34 years. I did consumer reporting. I did five years of investigative reporting. I did a lot of general assignment reporting. I did some anchoring. I did some talk shows, did telethons. Um, eventually, I kind of morphed into a political reporter the last, say, 15 years, yeah. which was very lucky for me because this state has been ground zero for all the, the tumultuous happenings in this country. And as a reporter... If you want to cover politics, the, the best break I had was being in a purple state. Mm -hmm. All right. Before we before we take this deep dive. And uh, so everybody who listens to my show know we talk about Arizona politics a lot <laughs> for a Chicago show. We talk about it a lot. Uh, David Ferris, who comes on the show every other week, a political science professor. We're always talking about Kirsten Sinema, uh, her impact on uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, and we talked a lot about uh, the role Arizona played in the 2020 election uh, and Rusty Bowers and his testimony before Congress. So uh, we are going to take the deep dive with Steve on Arizona politics. 
and then he is our official. He's passed the audition already. He will be our official correspondent. So we're gonna... <laughs> <laughs> I was sweating that oh, one out. You should have seen what he just did. It was pretty funny. Uh, so uh, we'll bring him back, and uh, maybe he'll even be our uh, TV uh, uh, correspondent as well, explain what anchors are up to. But I watched the segment where you um, you closed out your career. Your uh, I watched it. it's on the uh, on the internet. Anybody want to watch it can just Google Steve's name. You can see it. And you said a couple things that I would just like to uh, have you um, talk at uh, amplify a little bit here. And I'm doing this for memory, Steve. I don't have the exact quotes. I believe one thing you said about being a, a good journalist is you have to learn to listen, which is I was really appreciated a lot because that's one on one in my humble opinion. Uh, but then you said uh, that if you, you recommended that liberals read conservative publications and that conservatives read liberal publications, get out of your box, people uh, listen to what the other side is saying. And you realize uh, that you have more in common than you think. Everybody's pretty much the same is essentially the theme of what you had to say. Uh, I believe the advice is solid. And I am it's a constant joke in this show about me reading uh, a MAGA correspondence and then, then struggling to interpret them uh, just try to make sense uh, of what they say. But I'm not so certain I agree with you on that point uh, that we're all, we all basically want the same thing these days. We're all basically the same. I, this country is so freaking divided right now, uh, probably more so than at any point in our lifetime. And you and I have lived a long time, young Steve. Uh, and we remember 68. Uh, you were yeah. just a young lad in Evanston, but uh, you sure have, I'm sure you have memories of 68 and how divided the country was in 1968 when Nixon uh, defeated Humphrey uh, and was elected president. So talk a little bit about that. Do you still believe what you said in 2019 when you stepped down that we're all basically the same? No, I don't believe that anymore, frankly. And remember, I said that in 2019. Yes. So I said that before the 2020 election. I said that before COVID. I said that before January 6th, 2021. I said that before uh, at least the last impeachment of Donald Trump. And I said that before this current political environment sort of developed where Trump 2.0, uh, meaner than ever and less thoughtful than ever and more unhinged than ever, uh, bestrode the landscape of American politics is the way he is currently doing. So uh, I guess that was a, a, a wish that I had back then. And, and I guess it was grounded in, in some reality back then. I do think that the fundamentals are that people want to make a good living, that people want to live in comfort and security, that people want good schools for their children and more opportunities and than, than every generation had before. I mean, they want progress. And I do think that part is true. But at the moment, I just, I hate to say this, but uh, at least certainly in this state, only one party, and we can quibble with, you know, exactly what the policies are and if they're going to be good or not. But only one party really has a set of developed policy principles that they're trying to enact into a coherent sort of program. The other party is just... Um, you know, sort of a floating barge of grievances and and uh, and endless anger and resentment. And um, it has sort of come down, and this is a place where the divisions are very sharp. Um, they sort of come down to, I just, 
people will say, I just don't like the kind of people who are Democrats. I just hate their guts. It's just that simple. It's tribal. And I think at this point, I'd like to see a robust two-party system because I think that leads to better policy solutions when conservatives and liberals ideally can clash. But the George Will, William F. Buckley, et cetera, type of conservatism um, has been eclipsed by populism on the Republican side. And there's no coherent program that you can really have an interesting or productive discussion with or debate with. You can't compare policy objectives and ideas because there's just one side that has things that wants to do and the other side is just angry all the time. They just want to stick it to them and they want to own the libs on social media and and on TV and win the soundbite war and what they actually want to do about, you know, global warming or education or the border or whatever it is. I don't know what they want to do. There is no, and I asked out of people when I was reporting, even up to 2019 when I retired. Okay. So you, you hate Obamacare. I get that. What do you want to do? Never got an answer. So well, that's, that's the problem that, I, that I'm seeing on right now. And that's why I am a bit more pessimistic than I was four years ago. What it's going to take is losing, 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 losing. And eventually people will get tired of losing and they'll say, why do we keep losing? What do we need to do? And maybe tone down the rhetoric and then turn up the actual policy solutions and practical answers to problems to give an alternative to the democratic project. Then I think Republicans can improve their fortunes. Um, but it's sort of like the Democrats were in the 1980s. They lost, 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 election after election. Finally, they came up. We can quarrel about how good it was. But Clinton finally came along and he triangulated and he, made, he pulled the party a bit more to the center. And the Democrats started to win again. I have to vehemently push back on that one uh, as an obsessive political observer throughout the 80s, throughout the 70s, throughout the 60s, young Steve Kraft. Uh, the Democrats have been moving to the center uh, since McGovern. Uh, they are, were unsuccessful at it until uh, Bill Clinton ran in 1992. You're absolutely correct about that. Uh, I would say to you that Bill Clinton won in 1992 because Ross Perot was on the ballot taking uh, yeah. votes away. So he finally only won because there was a third party. But uh, Walter Mondale, God, this is ancient history. And I know, uh, Steve, you remember Walter Mondale. He ran in 1984, former vice president. His vice presidential candidate was Geraldine Ferraro. Walter Mondale in 1984 was an attempt to move to the center. Jesse Jackson was uh, the candidate that I voted because I'm a lefty. And so Walter Mondale was moving away uh, from like they thought Carter was too liberal. Then in 1988, they nominated Paul Dukakis, the the Massachusetts miracle, the man who can work with Republicans. I remember that campaign. Of course, I was on the losing side as well because Jesse Dukakis. What's that? Michael Dukakis. I remember. Yeah, him. yeah, Michael Dukakis. He was a moderate. He was he was like moving toward the center, and so uh, I think the Democrats. This is. The Democrats have always, in my humble opinion, attempted to move toward the center ever since 1972, when uh, you were a young senior at Evanston High School on the debate team and they nominated George McGovern, Uh, and which was a disaster electorally. But for lefties, it was like, oh, my God, someone speaks to me. And so that's the Democrats have been doing that. I'm going to take it to the state of Arizona. 
It's a purple state, as you said, which means that it's not blue. It's not red. It's like somewhere in the middle. I'm looking at every single Democratic candidate pulling a doing what Clinton did, doing what Dukakis did, doing what Mondale did, which is try to move toward the center to win over uh, independent voters. Your point is so well, I well taken. What are Republicans doing? in the state of Arizona to win over independent voters. I'm like, where is the movement toward the center on the part of the Republicans? Here's a state that went for Biden in 2020. You would think a rational political party would try to learn, would survey the wreckage of that defeat, learn what they did wrong, and then accommodate and adjust, as you were pointing out. I see no effort or attempt to do that. They're like doubling down on what didn't work in 2020. So what are the Republicans doing to try to win over independent voters in in Arizona? They're continuing to labor away, digging the hole that they started digging uh, in basically 2018. And they're they're still digging. And the party is ever more uh, sort of doctrinaire and um, dismissive of Republicans who don't follow along the, the MAGA playbook. Uh, a great example of that is my old colleague, and we can get into this, Carrie Lake. Carrie and I put on makeup next to each other for over 20 years. Every day at, uh, I was on at five o'clock a lot of times, she anchored that show. Um, you know, 10 to five, you go in the green room and you're going like this and you're putting on all the concealer and whatnot. Um, and so back then she was kind of a self-styled liberal person. She donated to president Obama. She, uh, was a performative liberal. I mean, she was very out front with that in a place where that could get you into some trouble as an anchor, you know, but that's how she was. Um, and she's from Iowa, went to university of Iowa, as we all know, she's from the quad cities area originally. And Somehow, somewhere along the line, she completely flipped after the 2016 election, and she became uh, more Trumpy than former President Trump. And so during this last election for governor, which by all means, I think she should have won because she was against a, in Katie Hobbs, uh, a, a candidate who was not dynamic and didn't exactly capture the fancy of people but one by being the plausible alternative to uh, somebody who was just way on the fringe. And, and Carrie Lake basically said during that campaign, uh, I have stuck a knife and she used a stabbing motion after she won the primary into the heart of the McCain machine. And so she was rejecting anybody who supported John McCain, Mitt Romney, you know, th- those types of people in the Republican Party. And there were plenty of people like that in, in Arizona. But she renounced all of those people. And so I worked for the uh, Katie Hobbs campaign in my retirement. And I told them we need to start doing social media campaigning, uh, finding those uh, Republicans who are the McCain people who have been picked out of the party. I mean, excluded from the party. It's like taking 20 percent of the uh, of your body, just cutting it off. I mean, that's basically it's like cutting an arm off. That That's what Carrie did. And she was. I think arrogant enough to think that she would still win and win dramatically and make a real statement by excluding these people. But instead, we explicitly targeted them and gave them 
as political types say, a permission structure to cross lines and to vote for a Democrat, just because, you know, just to save our democratic small d traditions in, in, in our country, um, some Republicans, country first Republicans, as the McCain people call them, had to put country over party. And so that gave Katie Hobbs just enough of a cushion to win the election, which she did, and which Kerry has, you know, in a crazy way, um, you know, denied that she lost the election. And she's filed a number of baseless lawsuits and she's making money, basically running a, a grift, I think, um, you know, monetizing this rage, which is all manufactured and really not grounded in reality. But but that's been the situation here. The party has become uh, very, very um, strict about who it excludes and who it includes. And so, you know, there's a, I'd say a good 40% of fiercely loyal Republicans here who really love President Trump, but that's below the majority you need. And at the moment, I think Democrats are winning uh, almost in spite of themselves. It isn't so much because people are in love with Biden's policies here. Uh, a lot of people aren't, even if it benefits them. And that's another discussion. But I think that they just want to save the traditions of the country and they, they don't like this project that is is so destructive and, and has so little regard for our democratic institutions. Uh, that was a great riff, Steve, and uh, a lot to follow up on. Um, I'm going to follow up with uh, you and Carrie Lake uh, sitting next to each other for how many years it was? Did you say 15 years? 20 years. Damn. So we know uh, in this state that the political junkies and the people listening to my show are political junkies. Okay. Uh, and they follow politics. So they know who Carrie Lake is. Uh, and, and but she is, as you pointed out, sort of the epitome, the whacked out MAGA person. Um, like, I, you, what was that transition? Was it what was it like seeing her transition? Did you ever have a moment where you got to talk to her and go, Carrie, what has happened to you? Not you know, really. No, Not really. But some of it happened after I left. Um, some of it had to do with COVID. And, and there are certain Republicans out there, probably some Democrats, if you believe the Robert F. Kennedy people, you know, but uh, who just some switch was was flipped somehow psychologically, I'm not sure how this happened during that whole miserable pandemic. And um, just the trust in governmental institutions and belief in experts and belief in science fell by the wayside for some people. And I think Carrie is one of those people. And the thing about it is, I still don't bear her any ill will because I'm just, that's just not how I feel about things pretty much. Um, but I just think that for whatever reason, she's gone way off track and, and, and sort of devolved into kind of nonsense in, in some of her public statements these days, which is too bad because I always liked her, got along with her just fine. To this day, I don't bear her any particular ill will or anything like that. But I, I just think that for some reason, some people kind of fell into a rabbit hole and they've never climbed out of it and they keep going further and further down into it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that... Um, of course, she's blocked me from social media. We don't have any, we're not in contact at all and haven't been for some years. But she just kind of got into a mode of thinking that sort of departed from facts and from reality. And it's disturbing to me if you're a journalist that you go so far afield when you have allegedly at least been in the business of 
looking for facts and weighing facts and evaluating facts and looking for statistics and data and making reasonable conclusions and giving people options to think about all that stuff's gone. It's too bad. Yeah. Uh, and when you say that, uh, she, like many others, she fell into a rabbit hole and has never come back. Do you think it's possible, not just her, but broaden it, that people will emerge from the rabbit hole at some point uh, and say, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> like Donald Trump just tweeted out. I don't know if you saw this. Um, it's not tweet anymore. It's uh, whatever, truth. Uh, it's his social media. And Twitter's not tweeting anyway. So, all right. Let me just and rewrite and this whole thing. Yeah, it's not the truth. Anyway, uh, a denunciation of the uh, women's soccer team. Saw that. Uh, yeah. That was uh, mean. I mean, you know, however you feel about Megan Rapino, that's our national team. We want them to win. We cheer for them. doesn't matter what party you're in or what your background is or what your stance is on trans rights or gay rights. I mean, what, what is wrong with people? This is our team. We can people can disagree about that stuff for whatever reason. But cheer for the team. I, I couldn't. I have not seen any case like that where somebody. I just thought that was really unhinged. I mean, in a way that I hadn't seen in a while. I know he was egging them on to lose four years ago when they won yeah. the when they won the World Cup, and then he was very silent after they won. And then, of course, they dissed him by not going to the White House because why would they? Uh, but he seemed to enjoy the fact that our national team lost. And how yeah. twisted was that? Well, it's uh, it's beyond okay. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's beyond uh, any norm that you or I have experienced uh, right. in our lifetime. And uh, I could take a whole deep dive and do a whole show on uh, sports and uh, politics, but I, I'll, I'll avoid that for the moment. Uh, and I just I just raised that to talk about how far removed from the norm. MAGA mm -hmm. is right now right. Uh, and I, I think about this I'm like will they will they ever emerge uh, they it doesn't seem like anything will get them to emerge toward more or less what a John McCain was uh, you know or a Mitt Romney these are people that I never supported just the world knows it's mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a liberal Democrat or a lefty Democrat so I would never vote for John McCain but I mean, he's just, <laughs> he exists in a world that I understand. Do you get what I'm saying, right. Steve? Like, you I mean, were just explaining it. Yeah. Trump, President Trump really hates, or hated, really hated John McCain. Why? Um, okay, let's go into that. John McCain, you know him. You covered him in John Arizona. McCain, well, John McCain saved Obamacare, for one thing. And that celebrated vote where he didn't want to break regular order in the Senate, you know, that thumbs down thing he did, you know, he didn't go along with destroying Obamacare without any kind of alternative. So that that earned the enmity of the of President Trump. Um, and, you know, he was a guy who made deals with Democrats. He was part of that uh, group, uh, you know, working with uh, Teddy Kennedy back in 2000 on education reform. Uh, you know, he was part, of, I think, of the Gang of Eight that wanted to have a bipartisan immigration solution before the 2010 election forced him to go to the far right in order to stay in office in Arizona. Um, he was a guy who was obviously a pretty strong Republican, but was willing to listen to Democrats, was known as a maverick, because on occasion, not a lot, but on occasion, he would vote against uh, the rest of the Republicans or a large, large number of them and side with the Democrats on certain issues. 
And at least he could be persuaded and, and he's a patriotic guy and he was a country first guy more than the party in the final analysis. That has now become a quaint notion. And the ranks of those folks are, are dwindling in the party. I'm guessing maybe 10 to 15% of, of people who call themselves Republicans in this state are McCain-type Republicans. And that's significant in a tight election. And we have a closely divided electorate here. Republicans still have a registration advantage. But there are a lot more independents and uh, more Democrats every two years with young people trending Democratic and people moving in from California and other places. Uh, the state has become much more mixed and much more of a battleground than it was when I first came here when it was pretty reliably a Republican state, but, but really not anymore. And so that's the, the challenge for Democrats. It's still a very closely divided state. And to your point, you know, could, could the, the Trump people win again? Yeah, they could. They really could win again here. And it, it was kind of fortunate that they didn't win in 2020 and it was very tight in 2022. And it could certainly happen again. Search me. I can't understand why, but that's just my analysis. But uh, yeah, it, we're still on a knife edge here. All right. Uh, we're holding off on the curse of cinema. We'll get to our listeners. I know listeners are going to want to hear what you have to say about her. She's a favorite topic uh, conversation on this show. Uh, but talk about 2020 election and uh, from your perspective, not only as a political observer in Arizona, but as a veteran of the news world. Uh, so 2020 was key in many ways in Arizona, one of which was that Fox, as you know, was the first, uh, I think it was the first network to predict that uh, Arizona was going for yep. Joe Biden and all hell broke out in the MAGA world. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I could argue that uh, Fox hasn't been the same since uh, they've lost almost all credibility, uh, let me strike that, they've lost all credibility, in my humble opinion, as being a news outfit when they punished the people who were being journalists, you, yeah. you know, who were literally telling what they do, using their expertise. It was a, a huge moment from the journalism standpoint, Steve. Fox was ahead of the game. Like, they should be triumphant. We were the first to call it. I mean, in a real world, talk about norms. In a real world, Fox would have bragged about that moment. You know, they would have reaped rewards for that moment. Our ace team of uh, news analysts, political analysts were on top of the game. You come here, you'll get the news first. Instead, you're like hiding under, you know, the Trump's mad at them. But you, they're like, they, fired, they fired the guy. I think it was Chris Dyerwald. The guy who made that call got bounced. Yeah, they fired him. <laughs> the guy was number one. But like, yeah, if, like you win the Super Bowl, we're going to fire you. Yeah, for winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, Talk about it. You were were you in Phoenix uh, on election night in twenty twenty? Yeah, I was here, and uh, I had just left the station, and the and the station I worked for was Fox Ten. I worked for Fox. It's an owned and operated station, just like Fox Thirty Two in Chicago or Fox Five New York, Fox Eleven LA. It's a big owned and operated empire. The station was a, a CBS station the first ten years of my career, and then it switched over to Fox. Um, but there was a lot of tension at that time uh, because, the, you know, this is we can have a deep dive into this sometime, just the perils of privately owned uh, or, you know, corporate owned uh, media in this country versus a BBC, which I desperately wish we had something like that. And we don't really not really. Um, but they're torn between getting the story right 
and satisfying the expectations of the audience. And those things are not the same. You know, do you tell the people what they need to know or do you tell the people what they want to know? And Fox decided to, well, we got to tell, we got to stick to our knitting, tell the people what they want to hear. So they're going to watch us. So there's a reinforcing loop of loyalty to our network so we can jack up our advertising rates and make a big profit for the Murdoch family and for our investors and stockholders. That was the number one thing for them. It's pretty clear. And truth be damned and reality be damned. Uh, that was distinctly secondary. And actually, I think this whole crisis that was precipitated by the correct journalistic call that Biden won Arizona, I think that put that network into a panic mode and into a downward spinning trajectory. And that's why the Dominion voting system's lie was really amped up in the wake of that election. And that cost them $787 million with more lawsuits to follow and a huge loss in credibility and market share. But they wanted to give people in their world what they felt they needed and wanted to hear in order to remain loyal. That was the primary objective. And I'm, I'm so disappointed in my old network. They really let people down. Wow. Just said, yeah. And conservative viewers, yeah. a lot of conservative viewers, I have a lot of friends who are conservatives here, deserve to have good journalism, just like anyone else. They, they shouldn't have to listen to nothing but propaganda and then maybe find the National Review online or Bulwark or something else. They should be able to listen to a legitimate center-right, high-quality news product, and they're not getting it. I agree. That's, that was really well done, Steve. That, that, um, I don't even know. Again, I don't want to go down this road because it could be a whole other conversation. Uh, but from a fiduciary standpoint, I don't know if they did their stockholders any benefit. So you talk about $787 million uh, payout to Dominion. Uh, well, maybe, okay, uh, insurance will pick up some of that. Uh, they picked up more of a market share of, of MAGA. They held on to it that, that, that they may have, they may have regained it, I should say, after having lost it for being, you know, like a good, uh, more or less good journalistic uh, outfit. I don't know if any of that is true. I've never seen any studies. I've never seen any numbers to back it up. It could have been a bad decision on top of everything else, a financial decision. They could be further down. They could have hurt and damaged their stockholders more by doing that, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, I get that. And that's how it worked out. But before all that lawsuit stuff happened and before their liability became clear, the libel case became so obvious, they felt they were making a good call, I'm sure, by doubling down on this whole notion that the election was stolen and that Biden wasn't legitimate and that there was something hinky going on in all these different states. Uh, you know, they, they kind of caved because they panicked because they thought they were going to, you know, lose a lot of viewership. And they scrambled desperately. And like a lot of times when people are desperate, they overreact in the other direction. They went too far. Um, they, they could have asked a bunch of rhetorical questions, which you're allowed to get away with in libel law, but they made a lot of uh, blanket, factual, quote unquote, statements uh, about Dominion and uh, Smartmatic, which is another yeah. brewing lawsuit, and, and to their great detriment. But, but that's why they did it, because they panicked and they realized that, oh, God, we, uh, the people who really like us are going to hate us now. Yeah. What do we do? And, they, and what was lost in all this was the notion of, hey, guys, 
you're in the journalism business, or have you forgotten? You're not writing a novel here. You're not doing an overheated uh, Hollywood yeah. film. It's not a yeah. fantasy. It's not a video game. This is the news. Yeah. So you're the news. They gave up on that. And I know a lot of people who left Fox uh, on the local level and, and the network level. They've had a lot of churn. There were some good journalists there, and there still are some. But uh, and when I worked, you know, I worked covering elections uh, along with network bureaus going back to 2012. No, actually 2008 around the country. And I worked with, you know, I went a number of times to the, to the Fox Bureau and in, in, in Washington and worked out of there. A lot of really sharp people, a lot of good people. You would never know talking to those folks before you go on the air, what the product that they're, that they were putting out was actually going to be because in real life they were clever, reasonable, interested, you know, they were journalists until the red light went on yeah. and then they had the stuff they had to get out there with and, it was just a shame to watch. All right. Uh, I don't think we're going to reach the end of my very ambitious uh, cheat sheet that I shared with you before we went on the air. So let's get to Kirsten Cinema. Uh, and uh, as I said before, we talk about her a lot on this show when we get into national politics and the impact she and Joe Manchin have uh, on Joe Biden's uh, fortunes in the Senate. It's infuriating for Democrats. It's infuriating for lefties. It's infuriating for liberals. Um, she says she's sticking to her principles. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Kirsten Cinema and her principles uh, and how she behaves as a senator. Okay, well, I've known Kirsten a very long time, probably 20 years at least. Going back to her early days when she was uh, fresh out of ASU, she'd been a community organizer and she eventually got a job, uh, won an election as a state representative representing the center of Phoenix, uh, which has uh, a diverse population, gay community uh, there. Um, and it's a place where a Democrat can win. And she got in that district and won that election. And she was a very dynamic, obviously very bright, charismatic, appealing um, young politician. And um, reporters enjoyed going up and talking to her in her office way up on the third floor of the uh, state legislature here, the house downtown Phoenix, um, because she would kind of hold forth and, you know, she was, she could run rings around the other legislators. I mean, she really could. She has a lot of brain power and, and charm or did. Um, and then she got into the state Senate. And what happened was, um, it's almost like Stockholm syndrome a little bit to me. She has made a practice. So what she's done in Washington is not entirely surprising to me because she did some of that here. We just, a lot of folks who voted for her just kind of didn't look the other way and didn't really see it. But she has always buddied up with uh, conservatives, Republicans, and in this state, Mormon legislature, legislators, because she was raised in the LDS church. And originally went to Brigham Young University undergraduate. Her family's story is quite traumatic and dramatic, but anyway, tumultuous. But she was uh, working behind the scenes and, and befriending um, outrageous uh, anti-immigrant conservatives in this state going back to 2010 or before. I mean, so... Yes, she could come across as what she called herself, which was the Prada socialist, because she had this, you know, crazy design sense 
very eclectic clothes and said she was a socialist and proud of it. But then she was buddy-buddy with uh, Russell Pierce, who was a former Senate president here, who was, uh, you know, a lot of Democrats just think is a total hater. I mean, you know, he authored the restrictive um, anti-immigrant or anti-migrant legislation here that eventually went up and was largely invalidated by the U.S. Supreme Court. And I, I covered that case in, in D.C. and went to the oral argument for it. So she's done the same thing in D.C. Uh, people who thought she was going to be a reliable Democrat should have known in retrospect that she was going to say what she needed to say to give that appealing uh, look to Democrats and to seem reasonable to independents and maybe get a couple of mainstream Republicans on her side. Mm -hmm. She ran a brilliant campaign all by herself without the help of the, of the, at that time, pretty ineffectual state Democratic Party here in Arizona. Paid no attention to the rest of the Democrats, won her election. And then when she was in, there's some change that I think has really come over her where it's all about her. She's almost completely inaccessible to reporters, very difficult for constituents and what I've heard to get anywhere near her or her office. And uh, people here who are Democrats hate her guts. That's the only way you can put it. She is extremely unpopular among Democrats. And I don't think that her support among Republicans is real because MAGA Republicans aren't really going to buy what she's selling. And that group of so-called independents that she's trying to reach out to I think is sort of a mirage. I would be highly surprised if she actually runs for re-election. I think she's going to keep the money, wind up working in lobbying, get a job for Big Pharma somewhere in the New York metropolitan area, <laughs> wow. something, and, and just kind of fail up and move up and have a very comfortable and you know fun life and run her triathlons and Ironman competitions and all that stuff. Um, but in terms of um, what she set out to do, at least in the minds of people here, she has not done those things. Wow. Now, she is a very intelligent, crafty, pardon the pun, strategic political thinker mm -hmm. who is playing three-dimensional chess when a lot of other people around her are playing checkers. That is true. But that intellect and that wiliness, I think, is only going to carry her so far. Mm -hmm. when, when she is seen as having betrayed in many ways the core constituencies of the Democratic Party. By not uh, supporting a raising the minimum wage, for example, uh, that, yeah, that was it for a lot of people here. Yeah, that was for a socialist not to uh, support raising the minimum wage. Very bizarre. But, but uh, I'm very disappointed that she doesn't, uh, you know, she's walled herself off from yeah. everybody. You, you can't get through to her at all, really. And um, the constituents... She's just doing her own thing, and it's all about her. That's just how it comes across to me. And it makes me sad because she's someone who I guess I was fooled along with a lot of other people. Um, you know, back in the day, I, I thought, wow, this is one of the brightest people I've met in a very long time. And I knew Gabby Giffords before she was shot, which was another story. And uh, I thought Gabby Giffords was going to become that senator. But once Gabby had to sadly leave the scene, uh, the opportunity was there for Kirsten, and she and she, and she did it. Well, wow. it's very. Um, uh, it just in this conversation today, Steve. I'm just thinking now about your uh, uh, analysis of the careers of Kari Lake uh, and Kirsten Cinema. Some parallels between them, the evolution that they had, um, 
and how they kind of lost their way, you know, uh, their careers would be far different had they just, I mean, people are who they are. So, uh, it's hard to say, well, if you've done X, Y, Z, uh, differently, but it would be two of the most prominent, uh, women politicians in the country would be from the state of Arizona. One a Republican, the other actually based on what you said, Carrie Lake should be a Democrat. So, I mean, um, she was up until like maybe 2016. Wow. I don't, I don't know what happened to her. I don't. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we've run out of time. We haven't gotten to Ruben Gallegos, who's going to be uh, probably the Democratic nominee for Senate. Will. You will. You think so? I think yeah, yeah. I think he will. And uh, depending on how unpopular President Trump gets nationally, uh, there's a path for Ruben Gallego to uh, to win that election as senator. And the people running his campaign ran John Fetterman's campaign in Pennsylvania. And they're really, really clever and, and really good on social media. Well, this is again, this is uh, I mean, uh, uh, Pennsylvania is not as purple as Arizona. Uh, I think that there's a greater Democratic base uh, to uh, take advantage of in Pennsylvania than there is in Arizona. But there are some similarities. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, we're in a situation, I'll close where we began, where you have a state that's divided between uh, Democrats and Republicans. And so the logical path uh, any politician should follow is to move toward the center. Uh, but only one party is moving toward the center. Uh, the other party is moving further from the center. Right. Uh, it, I mean, that's why I think, Steve, just when I remove the anxiety of a baby boomer, which I'm surrounded by anxious baby boomers, I got to tell you this, talk about this all the time. They're all freaking out. They always call me up with every little thing. This judge, Cannon, she's terrible. You know, it, it only helps Trump to be indicted. Stop indicting him. <laughs> like all the things that anxious baby boomers say. Uh, when I move away from that anxiety and I'm just thinking as a gambler, I mean, I don't see the strategy as a winning strategy that the Republican Party is following right now to uh, uh, as we head into 2024. Maybe they maybe they're playing chess. That's man. Let me ask you about that. We'll close with this. You're a chess player. Do you? I don't really like the chess. People make it in sports all the time. The analogy, you know, this general manager is playing chess. The others are playing checkers. Sometimes you're playing checkers. Why do you want to play chess? It's a simple yeah. game. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it doesn't have to be like, what was it that Mr. Spock would play? Like that three-dimensional Vulcan chess? You, know? <laughs> you could just play like uh yeah, you could just have a good time playing checkers. That's hard you're enough. Playing for- checkers. You don't want to play chess. Maybe just- they're overthinking it, but no. And to close with this, I think, uh, going on a limb, I think the Republicans are on a kamikaze mission here. Unless something happens to President Biden or there's something weird with the economy, all of this could flip. I mean, it really could. But if things stay as they are and, and health is good and all that sort of stuff, it does seem like a losing project and, and, a, and a bad move. And, I, and above all else, back to the sports analogies, these are two giant teams, like the AFC and the NFC, and they each want to win. <laughs> and if something isn't working over and over, they're going to change. Yeah, They have to because they want to win. They want to be in the game. Yeah, they may change uh, sooner than we realize. All right, Steve Kraft, thank you so much. And I just want to close by saying this. There's another guy we went to high school with. I'm just going to give his first name, and that is Phil. 
and Steve and I both know Phil. Uh, we're not going to go any further. I've reached out to him, too, to come on the show. But uh, Phil's so busy, he can't come on the show. So I'm going to send this link to Phil. And go, come on, Phil. You heard Steve Kraft on this show. Wasn't wasn't the end of the world. Send the link. He's a great guy, and he's super smart, and he's super knowledgeable about politics all over the country and in, in his home, now home state, adopted yeah. home state of Texas. Yeah. And he can break it all down for you. And and I think he I'm hopeful that he'll join the show. I hope sure. he does, too. And then I really hope here's the dream show. You, me and Phil. Oh, I, yeah. who, you know, I get a word in edgewise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, come on, Phil. Don't be so scared now. Come on. All right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Steve Kraft, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. And you definitely pass the audition and you will definitely be back. All right. All right, man. Thanks. All right. That's great. Steve Kraft. also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job. I think Steve and Phil will agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews and a whole lot more all at ChicagoReader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky show on Instagram at Benny J show. And like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.